You're listening to Why Try, the podcast. Bevan Burns is inspiring. She has so much passion for helping kids get the best education for them as individuals, and she's created a great school and environment that meets the kids where they're at and works some really amazing changes in their lives. They do so much good. I, I just came away feeling so inspired and positive about the world. So I really hope you'll enjoy our conversation and have a similar feeling when you finish listening to it. And we were talking a little bit uh, before we started recording about your previous nonprofit work. What is it that draws you to the world of nonprofits as opposed to for-profits? You know, I've, I've always felt that um, work is something that you have to do to pay the bills, but it doesn't just have to be that. And I was raised in a family with strong social justice values and parents who modeled working for the community for for a greater good inside and outside of work. And so I think that was kind of ingrained in me from a child. So I knew early on I wanted to build my career in nonprofit where I could feel like I was having my soul fulfilled as well as my bank account. Somewhat, you know, it's a nonprofit. So I'm not planning on getting rich, but I'm definitely planning on making a difference. Definitely seems like the world of nonprofits, you can't have to prioritize one of those over the other. Yes, absolutely. Could you share a little bit about how this school came to be? You bet. Bridges Middle School is a private, independent, nonprofit school. But we grew out of a program through Providence Health System. So about 20 years ago, they had a day treatment program through their um, large medical conglomerate, um, but through their youth services. And this was for kids who really needed primarily social-emotional support over academic support because they weren't able to um, thrive in a traditional setting. However, a mother and one staff member realized that there was a need for a couple of kiddos who really had more academic needs than social-emotional behavior needs, and that there was a gap of services between what private schools, existing private schools, existing public schools, and day treatment programs were offering. So these small gap kids were really being missed and their needs weren't being met. So the mother um, and this one, John Pink, who was one of our, our founding staff member through Providence, They started a pilot project with two kids in the basement of a house in Northeast Portland. And that first year, it was really evident that it was incredibly successful for them. Their um, self-esteem grew, their will to do school grew, and their ability to achieve academically really, really soared. Um, So it grew from there year after year, adding more students. Eventually moved out of that basement um, into a property owned by Providence that was sort of a remodeled school, formerly a Waldorf type school. And um, continued strong in that fashion for many years, Um, generally 30 to 50 students, um, which is still where we are today. And in 2012, in the spring of 2012, Providence was having quite a bit of budget crisis and they were finding that they were hemorrhaging money left and right. So they took a hard look at all of their programs and they decided that Bridges Middle School really no longer fit their medical model because it had morphed into truly an academic program. So they held a community meeting. They let teachers, staff, and students know at the same time that they were closing the schools at the end of the school year. And realizing that there was no other school um, of this kind in Portland or really in the nation, we had at that point, and currently, we have families move even from across the country to come to our school because there wasn't any program out there really meeting that, that gap kid need. So a few parents, actually quite a few parents, about 10 or 12 parents got together and they formed a committee to save the school. It was then called Gately Academy. And they uh, worked really hard negotiating with Providence to secure some funding to help go into a next year, 
went on a search to hire an executive director. I was really fortunate to be able to fill that role at that time in my life. It was exactly what I was looking for and I was what they were looking for. And we incorporated as a 501c3. We were able to maintain all of our existing staff and students. And while we did have to shut down enrollment that year because we weren't sure, um, the ones that had been there stayed for the next and we've been going strong ever since. There was a lot to that change, clearly, a, a name change, an ownership change, a shift from a program of a large organization to a small independent nonprofit, and really unique opportunities and challenges that came along with that along the way. Can you talk a little bit more about that transition? What were some of those challenges? Absolutely. So what was really unique about this is that we were a well-established program with a rich history of success in working with these kids. Yet we were infantile in terms of nonprofit development and organization. Um, took us close to two years to get the IRS to finally approve our 501c3 status. So we had a big job to do um, in shifting a model that didn't work for them to shifting to a community-based model that was sustainable. At the time we became independent, families had been paying about 13000 annually in tuition and the hospital system was subsidizing a great deal to make that possible um, because it costs quite a bit more than that to educate these students in our type of setting. So we had to go through a complete restructure of the financial organization um, as well as setting up the 501c3. And we had to do a lot of fundraising without a 501c3 tax exemption, which was difficult. But we had a large community of, of people who cared about our mission, whose children's lives had been transformed because of us and who were committed to making sure the school stayed available for families in the future. Um, so with a lot of volunteer help, everybody, all hands on deck, um, we were able to go through that transition. Um, and within the first year, first six months actually, of operations as an independent school, we learned we were going to need to move, that they were kicking us out at the end of the year, and that we needed to go through a name change because the Gately name was actually owned by Providence. So that was our first opportunity to really turn to our community and involve them in that process and continue that sense of ownership because it really was a school built by the people for the people. And we involved even the students in that process. So one of the big shifts that came out of that was we went from Gately Academy to Bridges Middle School intentionally because the students told us they just want to feel like they're at a normal school. And when they had the word academy attached to their school, they always got one of two questions. Oh, is that for really smart kids? Or, oh, is that for kids who have special needs? And they didn't want that stigma attached. So we went with Bridges Middle School. They were thrilled, really happy with it, but it gave them the opportunity to just say, yeah, I go to Bridges Middle School and not have to continue to explain because for them it is a very normalized academic experience. That's a great insight that you might not have gotten otherwise if you hadn't engaged them. That's it's awesome. so true. Absolutely. And I think it was, um, it was really valuable for the kids as well to feel like they had a voice and to feel like that voice was not just being heard but being honored um, and, and implemented and, and that they were part of that decision-making process. Totally. What are some of the things that you did bridge that financial gap. Ooh, yeah, that, that was not easy. So we, because we had some very skilled negotiators on our parent panel, that initial parent group, they did some amazing work with Providence and we were able to get um, a fairly large sum to help us carry through the first two years and provide some financial aid. And then we needed 
We had to do twice a year appeals to our base and continue the tradition of an annual auction. The auction is our largest kind of single fundraising event, and it was key for us that initial year to make sure that we we really kept with that tradition and kept those relationships going in the community. Um, another key piece was really working with the providers in the community, the the adolescent developmental pediatricians and mental health providers and tutors out there that work with kiddos like ours that need this type of school um, to make sure that they were educated to know that Bridges Middle School is Gately Academy, that we have done nothing but strengthen our programs and we are still available. So in, in addition to how important the fundraising aspect was, the enrollment aspect has been equally as important as a focus for us in terms of funding. We also had to be really strategic about how we set our tuition levels. We knew um, that the model we had been handed was unsustainable and was going into right about 300000 a year for them. Um, so we knew we had to do some pretty dramatic tuition increases, but we needed to make it possible for our families to, to handle that. So we notified early. We let them know the plan of a certain percentage of increase every year over the next five years um, until we got to a point where it was more sustainable um, to continue with a, 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 a manageable amount of fundraising. Um, so currently, we've through that six-year process, we've gotten our tuition up to 22500 which is a lot. But it still only covers about 80% of our operating expenses. So we still do quite a bit of fundraising and our annual auction every year to help us make up that gap of what it costs and what we're paid and to make sure we have financial aid funds available so that we don't have that additional access to barrier, a barrier to access for families who need us, regardless of their ability to pay tuition. Yeah, so what percent of your time is spent fundraising now? A lot. <laughs> it's interesting. It depends on the time of year. Um, around auction time, it's a lot higher. But of course, we have some really great um, parents and committee members who are parts of that committee that help make it happen. I would say 20% to 25% uh, on heavy times and maybe down 15%. We're actually currently working on developing a grant proposal to um, be able to secure a multi-year declining funding for a development director business development position. Um, I really believe that that is a piece that needs more attention. Um, we need to really build that and I would like to be able to provide much more financial aid in the future. Um, so that's a the key piece of what we're really looking at is how do we build capacity um, of our program by building capacity and staffing. How do you decide when it's the right time to add that new role? It's a tricky question. I think you really have to have the organizational systems in place. And that's what we really f spent the last five years doing is building our organization as a nonprofit with sound policies, sound financial practices, um, a strong volunteer board and strong leadership direction and a strong strategic plan that guides our work. So we are now at a point now where we have that in place. Um, we've also just been able to secure a wonderful new location in downtown Portland, which opens up opportunities for additional families throughout the metro area to access us in just in terms of proximity. What it also does by securing this new building, um, which is a major upgrade for us, not just in location, but in facility, but it also gives us an opportunity because we were able to secure a 15-year lease um, 
at current rates, we're able to really know our overhead for the next 15 years and strategically plan in a way we've never been able to do before on short-term leases. Um, Our previous building, we actually leased from Portland Public Schools, um, which has its benefits and drawbacks. Um, But one of the drawbacks is is that because it's a public use land, they had the right to terminate our lease at any point um, with a year's notice. So we really didn't have long-term stability there. We were also coming up on the last year of a five-year lease um, with with an option to renew, but but we knew it would be a dramatically increased rate um, because of what's happened in Portland with rental rates in in the real estate market. So now that we've secured the new space, we know we can we can reasonably project what our major overhead budget requirements will be for the next 15 years. So we really feel like we're now in a strategic place in the organization that we've had enough organizational maturity. We've got a strong foundation in place. We've got a strong um, wide base of community supporters at many different levels. And um, we're really ready to take on that that new capacity building piece. Um, But I think all those pieces really have to be in place to make best use of that kind of a position. Right, because it's kind of an executive, very high level side of things. It is, it's also gonna be a a new person to the school, whereas right now I'm the main sort of link to our community members and our donors and I have that rich history of relationships so there's going to be a process of transferring and building relationships which I really believe is key in any nonprofit when you're building a base of supporters um, building and maintaining those relationships is a key piece of that and that takes time and, and commitment and, and it needs to be authentic um, so we'll have to make sure it's exactly the right person that takes that takes on that role yeah so do you have a framework, more broadly speaking, when you're thinking about bringing in uh, a new person or a new role, how do you decide when it's the right time to do that? A lot of that's determined by budget and need. Um, so the special thing about our school is we serve fifth through eighth grade students with learning differences. So all of our kids have really unique challenges to to accessing education and to being successful. So. When we make big decisions, we're always tying it to what we call it student-based decision-making. So first and foremost, we're making decisions based on what our students need. Then we're looking at what is fiscally possible and responsible um, based on enrollment, based on fundraising, based on financial aid availability. Um, So a lot of those decisions are each year unique because each new set of students that come in creates a new cohort and a new environment with new group and individual challenges and needs. So for instance, this year, we were able to add a new position to our fifth, sixth classroom because our demand was highest there. So we were able to grow that classroom within reason and add an aid position where our lead teacher still is the main responsibility, but we're able to break those kids up into smaller groups for um, ability-based training and, and education that's topic specific. Same is true with administrative positions. Um, when we first transitioned to a nonprofit, um, Providence had a different administrative structure, and there were several people in the administrative positions, um, which was not fiscally responsible given the tuition base we were at and really trying to keep it affordable. So after a couple of years, really getting the foundation and structure and policies and programs strengthened to where we wanted it to be, we reduced our administrative structure down to just myself as principal and ED and the office manager. 
So we took out that additional administrative, another full-time administrative position. So sometimes it's taking away positions that makes the most sense where you're at organizationally, and sometimes it's adding them. And again, that that can flex and change every year for us. Um, I think what we've learned in terms of that business development position is that is a need that's there every year. And investing in that now is going to help us create a really sustainable future and ultimately build an endowment so we know year after year we have the funding we need and we have the financial aid that we need. We can talk a little bit about the student population. I feel bad that we're this far in and we haven't talked about what group of kids you're helping. Well, that's exactly what it's all about is these kids. So we talked about how these are kids not being... Uh, not having their needs met in traditional educational settings, but also not appropriate fits for day treatment or real therapeutic settings. So so we come in in, in the middle. Give a couple yeah. examples of what that might look like. Yeah, in the middle, yeah. absolutely. So a common, so all of our kids have really unique challenges, but the common trend is all of our students are cognitively capable of operating at or close to grade level. Almost all of them have fallen one, two, even three years behind in one or more of those academic subject areas because they've been in inappropriate uh, academic settings. So these are kids who have ADD, ADHD, are on the autism spectrum, are struggling with anxiety, with OCD, with depression, with sensory input um, sensitivities. And also many of them have a dual diagnosis of a very specific learning difference like dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia. So these things play together to impact their experience in the academic setting. Now in a traditional public school setting, you're gonna have about 30 kids coming and going every period. Um, There's no relationship building ability really because you just don't have the time. You've got kids within that 30 who are on very different um, levels in terms of where they're at academically. And a lot of kids then don't have their needs met because teachers have to sort of teach to the middle. So the kids on either end of those outliers, ones that are struggling or ones that really could be excelling, um, aren't having their needs met. And in our case, it's those kids who maybe learn in a different way, have a particular Uh, learning difference that prevents them from accessing content. So you think about a kid with dyslexia, that really affects their ability to read. Well, reading is in math, reading is in science, reading is in humanities, reading is in writing. So it impacts every one of their academic subjects and too often the um, focus becomes really narrow on the phonetics of just that reading issue, but then the additional support is not provided in those other academic subjects. Um, So here at Bridges, what we're able to do is we maintain small class sizes. We average about 10, that can be less or it can be a little more. Um, We have really experienced, dedicated and passionate teachers who want to be doing this work and who care about these kids. And what we're able to do by maintaining the small classroom and small school as a whole is build relationships. So everything we do is relationship based. We get to know these kids really well. By doing that, we're able to meet them where they're at, social, emotionally and academically, help them access the content in a way that makes sense to them at a pace 
that works for them and help them kind of go back up that ladder to reach their full potential where we cognitively we know that they're capable but these other challenges really impact their ability to either be in the classroom or to access the content as the teacher is presenting it through one modality so we offer multi-modality education hands-on project-based learning and we're always looking for ways to connect what we're teaching to a real-world experience so kids can internalize it and truly understand it not just learn it or memorize it yeah so how do you develop curriculum for such a diverse group of kids absolutely well i'll tell you i think the key is to be nimble and flexible Um, So we don't use any set curriculum for any of our academic subjects. We pull from a variety of curriculum resources and piece together our own curriculum each year for the kids in those classes. Now, one of the things we do is we group our kids by ability rather than age or grade. So in any given class, you may have a mix of ages and grades, but they're all going to be close to the same ability in that academic subject. Then we're able to meet them where they're at again and move them up that process of reaching their full potential. But And, and that's another way we're able to differentiate that's not done in public school. But again, it's really important for us to maintain that flexibility and not have the rigidity of one specific curriculum because no one, no two of our kids learn in the same way. So using the same tools and the same methods and the same curriculum for them is not going to work. And we we see that that's what's happening in, in other educational settings and we know that's not working. So it's very bottom up. Very much. And the, one of the beautiful things is that the staff that we have, most of our teachers have been here for many years, and the ones who are newer come to us because they have a passion for these kids and experience working with these kids. So they bring um, an ability to think outside the box that you don't see in a traditional setting and to take a very traditional benchmarks because we do meet Oregon Department of Education. We, we go to those benchmark standards, but we tear them apart and we put them together in a way that makes sense for these kiddos. And we take it piece by piece at a pace that they can keep up with, making sure that we're getting those key concepts along the way, but really focusing also on, on the process of how you access information and how you sort of connect those dots and link that information together and and have it sink in as as a knowledge base. Um, So it's in that flexibility of our teachers to develop curriculum specific for each academic grouping here. Um, So we do use a curriculum map so that we make sure we're always hitting all of the benchmarks within um, within each academic subject area. But throughout the year, we fill in the curriculum and lesson planning um, so that we, get, we don't do all that ahead of time because we need that to be individualized to our students. It's, it's a difficult task, um, but part of the reason we're so effective in working with these kids is because we truly build the relationship with them. We get to know where they're at, take, take our time really getting good baseline assessments and setting goals, and then charting that progress as we move through the year, um, helping them grow and thrive. Could you talk a little bit about the success of the program? So where are they? So the kids come to the school there at one point. What's their situation often when they're moving on to high school? Right. It's on a, on a couple of different levels. So first of all, most of the time when kids come to us, they're, they've been in, in a not appropriate set. They've been, almost all of our kids have been victims of bullying um, at public school settings in particular. They've lost self-confidence. They've lost will to do school. They've lost a sense of mastery. So coming through the Bridges program, we put those foundational pieces back in place for them. 
We also have two full-time counselors available always to help kiddos in those tough moments so that they can have a brain break, de-escalation time to be able to get back into class successfully. So by the time they come through Bridges, um, they've also had specific curriculum that we've developed called Social Bridges that helps kids learn how to navigate the social world of middle school. Really, every middle schooler in the world deserves that kind of overt instruction of how to navigate the social world. Most of our kids are taken from a safe elementary school and thrown into you know middle school, and they're not given an instruction book. Um, but here, we try to provide those really overt instructions. So they leave transformed in terms of kids who finally have self-confidence, who feel welcome, wanted, and worthy in this world, and that they have something to offer the world. Academically, we've really helped them bridge that gap between where they can perform and where they are performing to bring them up to that full potential. We also help all of our eighth grade students go through a high school prep class their entire eighth grade year wrapped in Greek mythology. So it's a topic they'll have as a freshman, but they leave here an absolute expert, which is a real kind of self-confidence builder in their pocket. They're gonna, they know they know this topic. But we also teach other skills throughout that process that help them prepare for that transition and for expectations outside of Bridges. And I think that's a really key piece of what's successful about our program is we don't just teach our kids to be successful at Bridges, we teach our kids to be successful in life. So that's at school, at home, and in the future. So we have this incredibly supportive environment, increased um, expectations for transition in high school. So academically, they're ready to take on the next level of high school coursework. Social emotionally, they're ready to transfer to a bigger setting with more diverse students, more um, opportunities for peer engagements and challenges. Does that mean like a public school? It means both. So about 50% of our kids will go on to a public school, uh, whether it be their neighborhood or a specialized charter school and about 50% will go on to other private schools. Not necessarily all schools specifically for learning, uh, for kids with learning differences, but also other private schools um, that may be faith-based, but that have good staff supports that help kid, um, kids that need extra support to mainstream. Um, we have incredible success with high school graduation and kids going on through high school successfully. And I think part of that is because we work really closely with families and providers as a team to create a, a sort of a wraparound success team for for, for these kiddos and plans, where we're meeting with the families throughout, throughout their time at Bridges, but especially throughout their eighth grade year to help identify where we think would be the appropriate placements for their student to get the, the appropriate support and help them with that application process. And then we help educate the new placement about how to best work with the student and how to meet them where they're at and make sure they keep progressing. So it's it's a multi-pronged approach, but it's social-emotional, it's academic, um, and it's also really working on transferable skills of understanding what my needs are, how I ask for help, um, some really basic sort of self-advocacy skills that our kids leave with. So those are all tools they bring into a new setting. Um, and they leave anxious, absolutely. Uh, in spring, <laughs> it's, a, it's common around here, our eighth graders' anxiety is through the roof because they're starting to realize they're gonna have to leave this safe space. Um, and while we've talked about it the whole way, it starts feeling real.
and we really do our best to support them through that transition and once they get there as well and and once they get there they're ready and and they thrive and they succeed and we've got kids going on to college four-year universities some will go to trade schools some will go to community college some won't go on to college that's not their trajectory um but most of our kids um do some kind of college after high school as we've been tracking that and certainly um, most of them are having a really successful high school experience the parents will tell you it's bridges if they hadn't been at bridges they don't think their students would have made it to or through high school and it was really a life changer game changer for them um, while it is an incredible investment it is worth every penny of investment for the success that it helps these students achieve and and the happiness and acceptance of themselves in this world and that you don't have to look like act like learn like everyone else you can be individual and that doesn't have to be a negative thing so what are the strengths of operating as a private school maybe you've talked uh, some about this compared operating as a private school compared to operating with a public school yeah i think there's a um i i mean i'm a mother so i should say that with kids in private school so i do i mean in public school i really value our public school system however um Resources are limited, staffing is limited, and kids are packed in. Um, so even the best trained, best intentioned teachers don't have the time and resources to meet each kid where they're at. That's where we have a really unique advantage. Because of the small class sizes, the small school, we're able to actually individualize instruction and differentiate lesson plans to meet them speci their specific needs. Another um, big difference is the social-emotional support. In a public school setting, you're gonna have maybe one or two counselors for 500 to 2,000 students. Um, here we've got two full-time counselors for 40 students so we're always have a counselor available and we're not doing intensive therapy so again it's that difference between an academic program and a therapeutic um, day treatment time program our kids have academic needs that far outweigh their social or behavioral needs but they need that support to succeed academically um, Another big difference is in a public school setting, if a student has individualized learning needs um, or any specific learning difference, they are likely going to be um, going through an IEP process, um, which is a great thing, an independent education plan and getting supports through the public school system. However, again, it's within their cramped <laughs> under-resourced setting. So they may be having aides come into the class. They may be getting pulled out and put in what are called communication rooms or behavior rooms with really kids who have very different needs from them, but they can't quite handle them in that 30 kid classroom. So they're getting stuck and they're not being advanced. And in fact, many of them are, are um, digressing in terms of behaviors and, and uh, social emotional needs and academic needs because of the setting that they're being put in. So as much as our public system tries to meet their needs, we see that it fails time and time and time again, because the key to what works here small classes, small school, tight-knit community, and relationship-based teaching. And that is not possible in, in any public school setting that I know of. So my understanding for public schools is that each kid gets, or e each school gets allocated something like $7,000 per kid. I don't know what the exact number it's is. It's about 11200 now. Oh, really? Okay. It also depends on the district. By the district? Yeah. So Portland. Um, they're at averaging about 11,002. So how does that work when a kid transfers to private school? Is there some contention over who gets that money between public school and private school? 
this is a big issue and this is an issue i i plan to take on bigger in the future but but here's the here's the travesty of it um no as a private school uh independent private school that money does not follow the kid um and it also does not go to the school anymore because they are no longer in that school um however we do have students who are placed by the school district when the district cannot meet their needs and they have a family who has the wherewithal the time the energy and often the resources to hire a lawyer the district will work with them ultimately to send their student to bridges when it's determined to be the right fit we have to get a lawyer involved for this often yes i i will say um i don't know that i've ever had a district placement that the family did not have legal representation so the thing is for a district to place a student in another school it's an omission of not being able to meet their needs and there is federal laws in place that mandate that public schools need to be able to effectively meet the needs of all their students including their students with learning differences in fact recently um, earlier this calendar year there was a supreme court decision um, an unprecedented unanimous supreme court decision that stemmed from one mom in one state not oregon i can't quite remember somewhere in the midwest um, who sued the local district because they were not meeting the needs of her, her uh, special needs son this went up higher and higher through the courts and higher through the courts. Ultimately, at a Supreme Court federal level, they unanimously decided that, in fact, no, this district was not meeting their needs. And, in fact, neither are any of the districts around the United States doing an appropriate job of meeting the needs of all of their students, especially students with special needs, and that they mandated that the districts need to respond and change in order to effectively meet these needs. So that's, that's a big issue and how that plays out we will see things are really kind of up in the air in terms of what's happening on the federal level with education how that affects each state local city county school district right now in order for and we have a handful of families every year who will be going through that process and will be placed um, what happens then is the district needs to pay the full tuition amount so they have to pay the same amount here that all of our families pay what I will tell you though, is while there is 11,200 allocated per student, the average amount spent by a public district on a special education student is well over 50,000. So in fact, when districts send students to Bridges, they're actually saving the district quite a bit of money, but they are on the record admitting that they are not able to meet their needs. So it's a double-edged sword, and it's a really tricky, difficult path to go down. Darn if they do, darn if they don't. Unfortunately, yes. And, and one of the things that we're really working in the background is how can we change that paradigm? How can we shift the mindset of the school districts to recognize that this is a valuable this program is a valuable community asset that's meeting student needs and that it is appropriate for the school district to access that for students who need it and in fact saves them money um it's but it's not so simple even though it seems logically like it should be that simple yeah if you move like up a level if they send a kid to a private school and fail to meet federal guidelines does that end up costing them like a larger amount of money over is there like a bigger pool of money that is being affected by uh, that admission, as you put it? Right. I don't know the answer to that. 
I don't know that they are able to really drill down into the financial impact of that at the sort of State Department of Education level. Very well could be, though. I mean, there, there could be other financial impacts. What's unclear to me is why the needs of the students aren't before that anyway. Because in some cases, we are spending over $100,000 a year on a student to get their needs met, either in the district or elsewhere. We have, um, for instance, Serendipity is an independent school um, that is 100% district placements, and they pay over $100,000 a year for each student to attend there. Now, it's and they pull from 37 different school districts. But these are kids that are really hard, that have behavior issues, that have violent aggressive behaviors, that have drug and alcohol problems, that have um, uh, legal um, incarceration and crime problems. They're kind of the kids the public schools don't want. And they're able to do this and place them there and pay 100000 plus. And some of them, they even supply an additional one-on-one aid for these kiddos. And these are kids that have needs that need to be met too. So I'm, I'm so grateful that there is a program like that, but it still, it makes me question, what about these other kids whose needs are just as great, but don't quite fall to that severity of impact on a public school setting? So we are kids that come here. We don't accept kids who have violent and aggressive behaviors because we maintain a really safe space. It's, it's even a narrower niche than that that we talked about what, what our kids look like. Um, but to think that their needs aren't as important as supporting with a fiscal investment here as another kid who has greater needs at a greater investment, it's hard every parent who comes for an admission to her ask that, and it's... It's really hard to tell them the truth that if you don't have legal representation, it will be very difficult for you to negotiate with the district for a placement. And the other hard side of that is they will try every other intervention possible for that kid within the public school setting. And at this age, particularly fourth and fifth grade is when kids really start noticing the difference between them and their peers. And those interventions they're trying, the aids, the push-ins, the pull-outs are devastating for these kids um, self-confidence and will to do school and they're not considering that impact and how that impact plays out in their ability to succeed in that setting they're, they're not taking those social emotional needs into consideration when they're making these academic decisions yeah, that's really tough and this might be a can of worms in itself but how how do charter schools factor into all of this is it too big of an no, we've looked, I've looked a lot into becoming a charter school. Uh, when you are a charter school, you actually become approved through the district and that $11,200 comes with your student. So it's a much different setup. The difference is you do not get to have control over your enrollment. The district chooses who comes to your school and you have to accept them. So for us, that wouldn't work with our model because we can't accept students whose social emotional behavior needs are over academic needs or who have violent and aggressive behaviors or it would absolutely deteriorate the efficacy of our current program. And it works right now. <laughs> it works amazingly. So when you are, and there's quite a process to becoming a, a charter school through the district, but when you do successfully go through that route, you, you do get those, that money's transferred but you lose control of that student body and some control over programming. And that wasn't worth it for us. So kind of jumping off into like a new area. So what are you most excited for in your school's future? I'm really excited about our new location. We um, 
have you know gone through two this is our third move <laughs> since we became independent um, and moves are hard right <clears throat> like the nature of a school oh my gosh. is very location dependent i would absolutely. imagine absolutely yes and our last building again being a pps building had challenges we we had lead in the water, couldn't drink the water. Can't, I mean, you know, you name it. It's a Portland public school. It's got issues. So we're really happy to be out of there for those reasons. But also location. We were way out on Marine Drive in north northeast Portland, close to Delta Park, right in the middle of the worst traffic bottleneck in Portland. Well, that was impactful for our families. Um, having said that, most of them will tell you they would drive to a cave in Alaska if that's where we were, because there is no other program like this. But it was a barrier to access for families. And um, over the four years we were at that location, we saw travel times of our families increase two, threefold. Um, and some of our families were spending three plus hours a day on the road just to get their kid to and from school. These are dedicated families, really. I mean, they're sacrificing financially. They're sacrificing time and energy. But you think about... Well, that's a testament to the value that you guys can offer. It really is. It really is. But... What it also highlights is how exclusionary it is, because that means you have to have a family member who's not working full time. You have to have the um, resources to afford gas back and forth. I mean, some of these families are coming from Happy Valley, from Camas, Washington, from North Plains. I mean, all over. That's like 40 bucks a day. Right. Like easy. Yeah. Right. So it becomes an, an, an exponentially increased access to barrier when you add in the financial cost of tuition, even with financial aid but you think about a financial aid recipient may get say even if they had 50 percent tuition financial aid they're still having those travel cost burdens and the logistics of trying to get a school a kid to school on time and pick up on time somewhere completely opposite side of the world from where they are um so having said all that i'm really excited about our new location because we're centrally located in downtown portland we have an amazing space now every one of our classrooms is 800 plus square feet floor to ceiling windows natural light we've got a fenced in play area we've got the urban landscape around us to take advantage of we've got tillicum bridge and waterfront and um dunaway park and other close parks to explore and take advantage of yeah, like keller auditorium like right. a block away exactly psu art museum all of these things we're going to be able to take advantage to expand our students experience in the community um, and engage in community service is another thing that we do with our kids so we have expanded opportunities for that as well so i'm really excited about it in terms of opportunity for us to expand awareness so more i really believe that we are portland's best kept secret unfortunately because i think we're one of the best resources available for families of kids with special needs we are um, increasing our opportunity for access by proximity to many different areas of the city and we have a really increased um, value in our facility that is meeting the needs of our kids better the way it's laid out the way our staff are able to collaborate our shared open spaces and and direct light those things are really exciting to me add on top of that that it's a 15-year lease and we now get this opportunity to strategically plan with a long-range vision we've never been able to have really makes me feel like as an organization it takes us kind of to that next level of what what i refer to as organizational maturity and um we're 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 really on a on a road for success now we also saw um some of our 
our biggest um, increase in enrollment just this last year. We've got 20 new students this year. Um, so the word is getting out there, but I really think this move is going to be um, exactly what we needed, not only to meet our kids' needs, but to make sure more kids can access us. Um, it was done, you mentioned it's hard to move. <clears throat> It sure is, and this was a really unique situation that came up on a very short timeline. Um, so we actually didn't move in here until September 6th, and we started school on September 11th. We had to delay school by three days, and other than that, we called in all hands on deck. Parents came, kids came, they helped us pack up, they helped us move, they helped us unpack, and we were ready to go on September 11th with 20 new students and all of our returning students. Um, it was a like magnificent a feat, and it took a lot <laughs> of dedicated, tireless effort and work. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, you think about how hard it is to move a, a, a house, right? Yeah, no, it's super inconvenient. We moved, yeah, I just moved into a studio and it's like, yeah, yeah that was kind of a pain, but uh -huh. <laughs> So we had 14,000 square feet to move <laughs> and um, it, it was a challenge, but um, because we have such an amazing dedicated staff who are here because they love these kids, they they went in they they put in extra hours they worked nights they worked weekends they put on their jeans and t-shirts and packed things and you know i mean it was it was really a heartwarming experience to go through and to have all of the families really be part of that um we've really felt like it was important to involve the students again kind of going back to that student-centered thinking um change is hard on our kids our kids have rigid thoughts they and transition is hard for them um, so we knew the move was going to be hard for them, but we knew once we got them here, they were going to love it. So we intentionally brought in um, some of our returning students to be involved in that packing up of the old school process to help them with that transition and to kind of accept that change and feel a sense of closure and in unpacking at the new school to help them feel a sense of ownership and that this really is their school. And it's amazing the sense of pride that they have for this new facility. Yeah, that's really cool. Something I haven't asked, I don't think, is what kind of retention do you guys see for uh, kids like one year to the next? Very high. Um, we generally have well over 90% retention year to year. Um, if we have a student leave, it's for only a very limited number of reasons. Usually it's a family has uh, moved to another state or area, or a student has really progressed enough that they're able to go back into a public school setting. And again, with, with the financial burden of tuition, that's certainly understandable. And our goal is to help our kids transition successfully outside of Bridges and to help our families have choice in academic settings. And then the third, which is really much more rare, is sometimes kiddos will start with us in fifth grade and as they mature, their needs change and sometimes their social emotional needs begin to outweigh um, their academic needs and they need to transfer to a setting that has a higher therapeutic intensity to it. So those would be the kind of the three most, the main reasons that we're seeing that happen. But generally, I w we're about 90 to 95% of our students uh, return year to year. Um, some years it's it's a hundred percent, which is really well, a beautiful. Seems thing. like a really strong number. Absolutely. So, who are some of the people who have helped you most in this journey? Oh, there's so many. You know that core parent group back in 2012, um, and this was a group of people who had students actively at Bridges, then Kately Academy, or families who had students who had graduated and moved on. Um, some even, you know, ending high school by then. 
They were instrumental, and there's about eight or ten of them. They were really instrumental in, in, in keeping that vision alive, in getting other people on board with a vision of a new, a new version of the school that's the same but better, um, and in those negotiations initially with Providence. Um, that was really key, the expertise that they brought to the table. And funders, we have some community donors who have year after year provided substantial support for our program to A, provide financial aid, or to make sure we have general operating funds, especially during those lower enrollment years. Um, we've been really fortunate to have a, a strong base of supporters who care enough about this um, school and our mission and know the value that it brings to our community. One of our, the mother I told you about in the very beginning that started off with a, a staff member to try that pilot program, Pat Caramanos, she was an amazing supporter of our school. So not only was she a founding member, member, she remained really involved with the board, with the school as a financial supporter and on the board for many years. And when she unfortunately passed a few years ago, um, she was actively on our board at the time and she, she left us a, a sizable bequest that really helped us keep that transition going after that large sum that came from Providence. When I say large sum, it was not that huge, but enough to help us get through those first two years of transition. And then Pat Caramonos really stepped in and helped us get through that next two years to, to where we are now in our sixth year, um, really in a strong position to have a viable, sustainable future, to have enrollment that is has measured growth, to have increase in diversity of our students, of our families, of our staff, all of which I think are really important for making sure that you continue to have fresh and diverse perspectives as we look to make sure we're meeting these kids' needs and, and to not be stuck in, in any particular box, but to really be able to think outside that box um, in new and exciting ways and and come up with ways to meet these kids where they're at. So there, there is really a core of early adopters and leaders that have helped to continue and sustain the work that we do. And then each year as families come through and realize the benefit and the value of this school, um, many of them become longtime sustained donors as well. And then we have some, you know, uh, corporations and businesses in the community that support us year after year. Um, and most of them are, they're not looking for marketing or name recognition. They, they do it because they care about these kids and they, they sponsor our auction. They provide us in-kind donations of services, of expertise and, and of goods and, and supplies that we might need. All of which helps us because it comes out of our expense pocket that we would have to pay for. So it really takes a village <laughs> and we've got an amazing village here helping us make sure that this school remains available for these kids. The need is only growing. I mean, you see every day, you know, how in headlines and news and education reporting, how incidents and, and diagnosis and reports of kids with ADD, ADHD, autism spectrum are just going through the roof. Um, yet we're not seeing that systemic change happen at the public school level. So, so this need continues to grow. I mean, I would love it if someday we were no longer needed because every public school had the funding, the staffing, and the resources they needed to meet every single kid where they're at and make sure that they are being given what they need to, su to succeed. That's not happening now, and we're a long ways from that. But ultimately, that's the goal. Our only reason for existing is to meet these kids' needs. 
And if that was being done effectively elsewhere, we would not be needed. So then my, my last question unrelated to that, do you have a favorite book you've read in the last year that you'd want to share with people? Yes, I do. It's called The Flight of the Hummingbird. It is, um, it's a very short book. I, I'm a mother of young twins, so I'm not doing a lot of pleasure reading right now. But this book, one of our art therapy interns actually recommended it to me. And it's based on an ancient Native American story about the animals in the forest. And one day a forest fire breaks out. And all of the animals are running for fear and running for cover and and they're getting smoked out of their homes and they're watching this forest burn and they're hiding and, and they're feeling completely lost and hunkered and paralyzed by fear. But as they look up, they see this hummingbird keep flying over them, back over them, back over them. Finally, the bear says, hummingbird, what are you doing? And the hummingbird says, I'm putting out the fire. He's taking one drop of water from the pond, taking it to the fire. And the the bear says, that will never work. That's way too much fire. And the hummingbird says, I'm doing what I can. And that message strikes such a core level for me that if every person in our society would just do what they could, everything wouldn't feel so overwhelming and we could really start to see some shift in how we treat and support our citizens of all types from all walks of life. I don't think we're doing a good enough job of that now. Um, It's part of the reason I've always been in nonprofit and always will be is I really believe underserved populations um, deserve every opportunity to fulfill their potential and we do not have the structures in place currently to do that so I often think of that hummingbird when I'm having a rough day here when I'm having a rough day at home heading off to another social justice community meeting leaving hubby with the twins just like last night but I think about we all have a responsibility to be that hummingbird and without setting that example, the rest of those animals would not have started taking water also. And, and ultimately, they save the forest because they each do what they can. And I believe that is so true of the world, that if everybody did what they could for the greater good, not just for themselves, we would see an amazingly transformed society. Thanks for your time, Bevan. Yeah, thank you. I think Bevan probably has the most unique book recommendation yet. I don't want to overstate this, but uh, I really think that the story that she shared offers some great parallels for her journey and that of many other entrepreneurs. So many things start with just a single person working to change their world, and then that person inspires others, and then those people join in the effort, and eventually you've got a community working together to create something really enduring. Whether that's the parents and people surrounding a nonprofit school, or a company, or even a larger corporation. Every Everything I think needs to come down to a central purpose and an improvement that people are trying to make in the world. And that's really what entrepreneurship and leadership are about to me. I don't, I don't think it can be just about making money. I think it has to be about working some sort of change and leaving a mark on the world, leaving it better than it was when you arrived. You can find more about Bevan and Bridges Middle School at www.bridgesms.org. There's a link to that in the show notes. Music for this podcast is by Cambrian Explosion, who once used their musical sorcery to domesticate a small pack of Tasmanian devils before discovering that these animals aren't really good for a lot. You can find their music at cepdx.bandcamp.com and Apple iTunes and Spotify. If you like this podcast, help me spread the word by sharing it with at least one friend. 
preferably a really famous friend with lots of followers on social media. You can also help me grow this podcast by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and review for Why Try. Thanks for listening.